I'm Kelly McEvers, and this is Embedded, an NPR podcast where we take a story from the news and go deep. And today we're talking about this story. The Obama administration's plan to set up nationwide raids. Nationwide immigration raids. Deportation raids all across the country. The president says he supports deporting criminal aliens. Is President Barack Obama the deporter-in-chief? Deporter-in-chief. Deporter-in-chief. The Obama administration has deported more immigrants than any other U.S. administration in history. All this while also trying to offer relief to millions of other immigrants through executive orders. That's being argued in the courts. And with these deportations, it's not like people are just pulled off the streets and sent back to their country. Usually, if they're caught trying to cross the border illegally or committing a crime, they're detained. Then they go before a judge, plead their case to stay in the U.S. So far, it sounds a lot like the regular criminal justice system. But it's not. And the problem is these courts, 57 of them across the U.S., are really hard to access. Court records are hard to get. Journalists aren't allowed to record inside the courtrooms. And immigration judges and prosecutors are not allowed to talk to reporters. About half of immigrants in these courtrooms actually win their cases and get to stay in the U.S. But in some of these courts, almost no one wins. And it's hard to know why. So that's where we're going to go today. Inside one of the immigration courtrooms where you are the least likely to win your case. HubSpot supports Embedded because they love great stories. That's all. HubSpot wants to get back to the episode early, too. So that's what we'll do. Okay, so I'm going to hand this story off to Caitlin Dickerson. She's an investigative reporter for NPR. And she wanted to know what goes on in this totally separate yet closed judicial system in the U.S. What does it look like? when the rules are so different from what we're used to. And to do this, she worked with a defense lawyer whose name is Julio Moreno. And she eventually got access to an immigration courtroom in the very small town of Lumpkin, Georgia. Here's Caitlin. It's 4 a.m. and I just got in the car and I'm headed over to Julio's office to meet him there. From there, we have a three to four hour drive to Lumpkin. It's uh, pitch black and looks like nobody's up but me around here. I drive over to Julio's office in Atlanta. He gets up early like this a couple times a month to drive to Lumpkin. How are you doing? Good, how are you? Good, pretty good. When I get there, he's pulling together the files on five different clients in Lumpkin. Because it's so far away, he has to fit in as many meetings as possible when he goes there. Just trying to get facts together. But today, I'm just going to follow one of Julio's clients. When it's time to leave, Julio and I get into his blue Toyota 4Runner. Julio's from Venezuela, but when he was a kid, rebels tried to start a coup. They staged attacks in the capital, where Julio and his family were living. I remember hiding under the kitchen table, or people shooting, there was looting. After that, my family decided that we're going to find a way out. How old were you at the time? When I came to the U.S., I was nine years old. Um, me and my brother were the only two kids in that school that spoke Spanish. I remember the first day I was made fun of on the bus because I couldn't understand what they were saying to me. Eventually, he learned English. It took another 10 years to become a citizen. During that time, he went to college and then law school, and he got a job at an immigration law firm. And right away, I, you know, I 
I fell in love with it. I love representing people in immigration cases. You know, if I win the case, and I'm basically keeping the family together, which I think is a big deal. Julio's been an immigration lawyer for six years. On the drive, we talk about immigration law, how different it is from criminal law. When you're arrested on immigration charges, you aren't read any rights. No free lawyer if you can't afford one. No speedy trial. No jury of your peers. Do you have a problem with that? I do. I definitely I wish the system would change to safeguard people's rights. The way the system is set up now, they're set up to fail, and they don't really have a chance of winning a case or remain here in the U.S. And I should say you're only getting Julio's perspective here, because no one from the government would agree to an interview. The Department of Justice and immigration officials did send us statements saying basically they're following the laws. And the laws say immigration's different. The reason dates back to a Supreme Court case from the 1800s. The court found that deportation is not a punishment. It's merely the process of returning a person to where they rightfully belong. So they don't get the same protections as criminal defendants. Down to two lanes now from our six in Atlanta, right? That's right, we had six or seven in Atlanta. We're on our way to one of the busiest immigration courts in the country. Thousands of cases are tried in Lumpkin every year. So many cases that the detention center can hold almost twice the number of immigrants as the entire town has residents. Only a thousand people live here. Cell phones drop off in town, except for at the detention facility. And there are no working immigration lawyers in Lumpkin. It's expensive to pay one to travel there, so most immigrants don't. That's part of why almost every single one of them will lose. More than 97% are deported. Another reason is that immigration courts have to follow precedent, basically what other courts in the region have decided in the past. Lumpkin's in one of the toughest parts of the country on immigration. The immigrants here are also more likely to have criminal records. Welcome to the city of Lumpkin. Into the city of Lumpkin. Just as the sun is coming up, around 7.30, we get into town. You see lots of abandoned houses and shuttered businesses. Then we turn into the detention center. It's on CCA Road, which stands for Corrections Corporation of America. This road is better than all the others in town. On both sides, we're surrounded by bright green, freshly cut grass. Welcome to CCA Stewart Detention Center, America's leader in partnership corrections. The government pays CCA and other private prison companies to house a lot of the immigrants in deportation proceedings. Many are in rural facilities like this one. And that's the jail. It's a big white building, looks like one story. The complex has high fences all around with barbed wire on top. The hearing we're here for starts at one o'clock, so Julio has a few hours to meet with his five different clients here. But when we get to security, there's a problem. The request was sent to record? Yes. Video record? No, not video, just audio. The guards say I can't come in. I tell them I have approval from the facility and from the government. Still no. Let me verify with the warden on the audio recording. Okay, thank you, because ICE did approve that. They tell us to sit in the waiting area. There are already a few other families here, probably to visit detainees. Then another guard comes out. So then we have to take our cell phones out to the car. Julio says you don't always have to do this, but today we do. CCA says this happens sometimes. It's 8.36, we've been sitting here since 7.50, waiting to get in. 20 minutes later, a guard says I can come in. So finally, we're gonna meet the man whose case I'm going to follow today. 
A guard walks us into a room with peach-colored concrete walls and a desk. There's a big sheet of glass on one wall with an identical room on the opposite side. We sit down, and in walks Sean. He's a tall man in a red jumpsuit. His hair's cropped tight. He looks tired. He's been detained here in Lumpkin for five months. We're using his first name and his family members' middle names to protect their identities. What's going on, Sean? How are you doing? Let me get your case out so we can start talking. Hi, Sean. I'm Caitlin. It's Caitlin. Sean came to the U.S. from Guyana in South America legally when he was 10. He grew up in New York City and married his high school sweetheart. He has three kids, and in 2005, they moved the family to Georgia. How are you feeling today, Sean? Nervous. I didn't sleep yet. I couldn't sleep last night. In 2011, Sean was arrested at home with four ounces of marijuana. Sean says he smoked weed, but he didn't sell it. But he was convicted of possession with the intent to distribute marijuana. He went to jail for a year and a half. When I came out of prison, I, for the last two years, I thought I got a second chance. And I mean, I turned my life around completely. Just work, home, karate with my kids, weekends, babysitting my niece and nephews, you know. So, and I look forward to that. They keep me out of trouble, they keep me busy, but they'll be picked up. After you promise your family you'll never leave them again, that was the worst thing I could ever go through. Two years after Sean got out of jail, he showed up for a monthly check-in with his probation officer in Georgia. When he walked in the door, immigration officers were there, waiting for him. They put him in handcuffs and took him into custody. Sean was picked up this second time because even though he's here legally, he's not a U.S. citizen. And when non-citizens commit crimes in the U.S., they can be punished twice. First, they serve a criminal sentence. And then if the crime is serious enough, like intending to sell drugs, they're put in deportation proceedings. The second arrest shocked the whole family. They didn't realize ICE could come for Sean so long after he got out of jail. Georgia prison officials say the delay was a mistake happens sometimes. Now that Sean's in the immigration system, two previous drug convictions have also resurfaced. Back in New York in his 20s, he was convicted twice for possession of pot, misdemeanors. So there's a lot on the line for Sean today. If he wins, he could go home with his family. If he loses, he'll be deported to a country he hasn't seen in three decades, 3,000 miles away. All right, Sean, so... Today's a big day. Today's the day that the judge is going to determine what's going to happen with your case. I want you to be relaxed. I don't want you to be nervous when you're in there. Julio doesn't have much time. He goes through a bunch of possible questions Sean might be asked in court today. He says he wants Sean to make two points very clear to the judge. One, that he's sorry for his mistakes in the past. No denying them and no excuses. And two, that his family will suffer if he's deported. Once you get in there, you have to make sure the judge knows. I'm very remorseful. I'm ashamed that I put myself in here and my family. Before we go, Sean says the worst part about being detained in Lumpkin is the uncertainty. You don't know if you're going to see your family again, you know, being deported. You don't know what the outcome going to be. And from seeing what's happening to a lot of people in here, it really takes all your hope away from you, you know. I see so many people come and go lose their case, you know. Pretty quickly, Julio has to move on if he wants to meet with his four other clients. All right, Sean. See you in there in a couple hours. Thank you. All right. Take care. 
after those meetings, we head back to the car to try to find a quick lunch. On the way, Julio sees the prosecutor on Sean's case, Reed McKee. He runs off to say hi. When he comes back, he says he's relieved because some government lawyers are tougher than others. Some will dig through old arrest records to look for any little detail that can be used to make his clients look worse. Reed McKee is not like that. He's been a prosecutor for six years. He's the Department of Homeland Security's assistant chief counsel. It's a guy that I've dealt with before in other cases. He's been fair, and he's never sprung anything up on me last second that I can remember. Then I ask Julio a little more about Sean's past. Do you believe Sean when he says he wasn't selling marijuana? I do. I do. Thirty people wrote letters to the judge on Sean's behalf before today's hearing. His boss, people he goes to church with, his family, friends. Julio says he's represented a lot of people. And bad people, drug dealers, they just don't get that kind of support. But the arrest records from 2011 show police also found scales at Sean's home. Evidence they said pointed further to the fact that he was selling. A scale could could signal just a, a savvy consumer. If you're purchasing marijuana and somebody who has been smoking for a long time, you know, probably wants to make sure he's getting the right product and um, and he's paying for what he's receiving. I'm not sure if I buy this. But at the same time, Sean's lived in the U.S. for 30 years, a country where pot is now legal in a lot of places. Let's see if we get a spot over here. Oh, wow, look, there's like 10 of them, more. When we pull back into the detention center, Sean's family has arrived. 11 people packed into two cars and drove three hours from a suburb of Atlanta to get here. They're also part of Julio's strategy. Hopefully the judge will be afraid. (laughs) Afraid? (laughs) Like intimidated to let them all down? Right. I get out of the car and walk over to say hi to Sean's family. Nice to meet you. my sister. Hi, Hi. how are you? Nice to meet you. You too. Nice to meet you. So what are you guys going to do for the next two hours? Pray. That's all. We're just trying to keep him elevated in prayer. Sean's wife, Marie, and I sit down in the car for a few minutes. So how, how do you feel today? I'm just here, just waiting to see what's going to happen. I don't want to be excited, and I don't want to be sad. I'm just trying to stay neutral to everything. Because I think if I start, I wouldn't stop if I get start going downhill. So I'm just trying to stay neutral ground. Marie says during the day, she's so busy that the time passes really quickly. But when she gets into bed at night, the reality catches up with her. You know, it could be a little rough at nights, but, you know, just kind of try to picture him there or picture him maybe on a trip or, you know, not think about where he's at. Just kind of try to talk and act like this is not happening. On New Year's Eve, the guards let Sean stay on the phone with Marie until midnight while she watched the ball drop on TV. Marie says she knows Sean put her family in this situation, but she doesn't think his mistakes warrant sending him back to a country he doesn't remember and breaking up their family. I still had questions about what exactly Sean was doing before ICE picked him up that day at his probation office. What do you make of your husband's convictions over the years? Well, those were all like what he's done. You know, it was all stuff that haunts him from the past childhood, growing up in New York City and being in the streets and trying to get by, you know, he had he had to find ways to take care of his family, you know. He has three children. and So was he selling drugs in the 90s? In the 90s, he was like 
teenager. I don't, I mean, like I say, he's not no Scarface or a big drug cartel or, you know what I mean? Or if, if not, we would not be struggling here, you know, trying to get by paying bills and everything else. Um, it's just, it's just really small stuff. Uh, so what happens today if you get, if you get a good outcome? Um, we go home and we live our lives. We have a party. We celebrate, celebrate my mom's birthday, celebrate his homecoming and do you guys leave a space for him in these cars, or is he going to have to sit on somebody's lap? No, we definitely bought the, the big vehicle, so <laughs> he has a space going back, yes. Okay. And what's the plan? Did you guys talk about the plan if, if he doesn't get to come home today? Um, I don't even want to think about that, so I have no plan if, if, the, if they deny it. I just look forward to walking out of here with my husband and taking him back home and doing what we have to do to put this behind Marie, her mom, and Sean's stepmom are all going to be witnesses in the trial. While they prep with Julio, I talk to Joey, Sean and Marie's nine-year-old son. He's wearing a blue dress shirt with a bow tie. What do you tell your friends if they ask where your dad is? I say on a business trip. Oh, you do? Why do you say that? Because, like, it's not really their business. And then my cousin said, um, his dad is in immigrant jail, too. And so he said, he every time someone asks, he say in a business trip. Is it easier just to say that than to have to talk about it? Yes. If Sean's deported, he won't be allowed back into the U.S. for 10 years. It's not clear if Joey understands this, but he tells me he wishes he could defend his dad in court today. What would you say? I'll say that it isn't fair that he can't come home. And it'll be, it'll be more fun. He already missed his 40th birthday. And he missed Christmas, New Year. I wish he can come home this day. I walk back to Julio's car to drop off my stuff. It's almost time to go in for the trial. How are we doing on time? About four minutes from right up. So what's it like for you seeing the family before a hearing? Um, it's always tough. I don't like getting their hopes up. So they're always looking for some type of reassurance. Oh, how do you feel now? Do you think we're going to win? Do you think he's going to get out tonight? And I always try to keep it, you know, as bland and plain as possible. Did they ask you that today? Yeah, they've asked me, they asked me that last week and pretty much every time I've spoken with them. They just say, um, how do you feel about the case? Right, and I'll just say, listen, I still think we have a strong legal argument, which is true. So, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic mm-hmm. at this point. To be honest, I'm getting really worried. I don't know this family. I mean, I just met them. But in a few hours, they're either going to be reunited or devastated. Sorry, nothing. Ready? Okay. I'm going to leave my recorder and my phone in the car because I can't bring them into the hearing. And we're going to go find out whether Sean gets to stay in the U.S. or not. Coming up after this break, Sean's trial. We'd like to say a quick thank you to one of our sponsors who brings us the following message, Stamps.com. Stamps.com helps businesses avoid time-consuming trips to the post office. With Stamps.com, you use your own computer and printer to print official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Then the mail carrier picks it up. No more wasting time going to the post office or wasting money on expensive postage meters. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com for a special offer. 
a four-week trial, plus postage, and a digital scale. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone, and type in Embedded. Okay, we're back again, and we're going to start up with Sean's trial. Today is uh, January 14th. 2016 at the Stewart Immigration Court Stewart Detention Center in Lumpkin, Georgia. This is an Caitlin Dickerson continues the story. Remember, no recording is allowed inside immigration court. Lawyers and defendants can request the official government audio. That's how we got it. The sound quality is pretty bad. 039-062. The courtroom is tiny. Gray walls, no windows. Looks like a miniature version of the kind you see on TV. On the left side of the room, Sean sits next to Julio. Reed McKee, the government prosecutor, is opposite them. The judge, Dan Trimble, is up front in black robes. Respondent is present and is being represented by Julio E. Marino Esquire, who's also present. Here's Julio's strategy. He thinks he can convince the judge to consider Sean a low-level drug offender rather than a drug dealer. This distinction is important because being a drug dealer will automatically get you deported. His argument's a little complicated, but it's based on a Supreme Court decision that supports his position. Okay, but even if Julio does that, he also has to convince the judge to use his discretion to keep Sean in the U.S. This is another difference between criminal and immigration law. In immigration court, once you win your legal argument, then judges are supposed to look at all the positive and negative things about you and decide whether or not they think you deserve to stay. There are guidelines for what the judge should consider in making this really important decision. But ultimately, it's subjective. Remember, less than 3% of people here succeed at this. But Julio's track record is better. It's more like 20%. He's feeling good about Sean's case. Ma'am, let me go ahead and uh, swear you in. Please raise your right hand. He calls Marie as his first witness. How do you know the man who's sitting to your right? He's my husband. Julio asks her to describe their relationship. You know, we spend a lot of time together. My husband's my best friend, and we've always been there for each other through childhood, through adulthood, through now trying to get into our midlife together. He goes on to ask why Sean has messed up so many times over the years. Marie says it's simple. He was a poor immigrant growing up on the streets. She says he's a good person who didn't have any guidance or resources. And then Julio asks how Marie knows that this won't happen again. Have you given, given him any type of ultimatum? Yes. I told him I would leave him if he was to be convicted of something again. He would break apart an entire family. He's the glue to our family. He would, he would break everybody up. That's all I have for this witness, Your Honor. All right. Uh, Mr. McKee. Um, yes, yeah, thank you. Um... Regarding his substance abuse treatment, I've looked through the documents that have been presented by your husband and his attorney, and I don't see any evidence of drug treatment. He asked me to try to find some of the paperwork mm-hmm. from being that we relocated. I mean, he even had a little trophy mm-hmm. from the program he did in New York, a certificate. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, but you couldn't find any documentation no. of that? All right. This might seem like a small thing, but it's important because Sean needs to show the judge that he's changed. And a really straightforward way to do that is documented treatment. Back to Julio. He calls Sean. Thank you, Honor. He asks Sean if he's learned from his mistakes. Sean says yes. About whether he's been back to Guyana since he was 10, whether he knows anyone there now, Sean says no. And then he asks Sean one final question. Why do you believe this court should give you a second chance to remain in the U.S.? I promise you, 
that I would never be back in none of these courtrooms ever again. I apologize for my mistakes I've made in the past, and I'm a changed person. I need my family, and they need me. That's all I have is my family in America here. That's all I have, Your Honor. Thank you. Sean answers just as Julio told him to. He said he was sorry that his family would suffer without him. Now it's the prosecutor's turn. And this is a moment that Sean and Julio couldn't totally prepare for. Nobody knows what he's going to say. It's nerve-wracking. Right away, he brings up something that wouldn't fly in criminal court. Now, sir, looking at your arrest history, a person might draw the inference, since you've been arrested in four different states for possession with intent to distribute drug crimes, that you had been dealing drugs. Um, Have you ever dealt drugs in the United States? No, sir. I'm going to object to that question. So earlier I told you that Sean was convicted of selling marijuana one time, but he's been charged with it four times, including a 1996 arrest in Washington, D.C., where he was let go. In criminal court, a prosecutor wouldn't have been able to bring up these earlier charges because they were never proven, and they make the defendant look really bad. In criminal court, you're innocent until proven guilty. But in immigration court, the rules are different. To the respondent. Overruled. You may ask the question. Okay, sir. Um, I'm going to repeat the question. Sir, you've got four arrests in four different states over about a 20-year period for possession with intent to distribute drugs. A reasonable person might conclude that you've been dealing drugs in the United States. Have you ever dealt drugs in the United States? No, sir. If you think that's bad for Sean, it gets worse. Because the prosecutor uses Sean's answer against him. He backs Sean into the corner that Julio wanted to avoid. Remember, he told Sean no excuses. Okay, but why did you plead guilty to possession with intent to distribute if you were not possessing with intent to distribute marijuana? Because they're trying to give me 10 years in prison. I, you know, I can't afford to do 10 years in prison for something, you know, so I just took the guilty plea. So you're saying you just took the plea to avoid a prison sentence and that you really didn't commit the crime of possession with intent to distribute. Okay. If you believe Sean, then he's in a really tricky bind right now because he says he's not a drug dealer, never has been. But it sounds like he's not taking responsibility for a crime he was convicted of. Ma'am, let me uh, swear you in. Please raise your right hand. Then Julio calls Sean's mother-in-law. She hits her mark. This whole family is going to fall apart. We're falling apart already, and it hurts. And Sean is a loving boy, and I know he's going to do better. We can't live without Sean, sir. It's it's taking a toll on everybody. Okay, thank you. Those are all the questions I have for this one. So hearing this testimony made me think about one of the slogans behind the Obama administration's immigration agenda. Felons, not families. We deport felons, not families. But of course that distinction is not easily drawn. Sean is a felon, but he's also obviously a huge part of this family. I can't tell where the judge will land. No more evidence, Your Honor. We rest. We rest. When it's time for closing arguments, Reed McKee, the prosecutor, goes first. I want to point out, Judge, there's really no evidence whatsoever in the record other than this testimony uh, showing that he's completed these programs. He may have attended them at one time, but there are no certificates of completion. There's usually paperwork associated with this kind of activity. We don't have that for some reason. 
He says uh, Sean's not sorry and that he might be lying. I want to point out also relevant to rehabilitation the respondent when I asked him about his most recent conviction for possession with intent to distribute marijuana in Georgia. And he basically said, I didn't do that. Thank you, Mr. McKee. Mr. Marino. Yes, Your Honor, just briefly. Um, First, Julio reinforces the, his legal argument that Sean should not be considered a drug dealer. And then he goes back over all the good things we've heard about Sean throughout the trial to win over the judge's discretion, that Sean served his time, that he's sorry, and that it will hurt his family if he's deported to Guyana. We believe the evidence clearly outweighs the negative factors, and we ask that the court exercise its discretion and grant this 42A application. Well, thank you, uh, Mr. Marino. Uh, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to go off the record and review testimony I've heard today. I also want to look once more at the documents in the case. And then after I do that, I'm going to um, make a decision in the case, and I'll come back and tell you what my decision is. Thank you. Lawyers tell me it's not unusual for judges to go back into chambers and deliberate. But it is unusual for a judge to be gone this long, an hour and 15 minutes, and it feels even longer. The courtroom is silent. Government prosecutor sits typing away at his laptop, maybe working on another case. Marie and Sean Steele looks at each other once in a while, but they're not allowed to speak. Joey looks down into his hands, kicks his legs out in front of him the way kids do. I'm extremely anxious. Because even if you don't believe anything Sean said on the stand, it's hard not to worry for his family in the audience. At one point, Joey and I walk out of the courtroom at the same time. I ask him how he thinks it's going. He says, I think we're going to win. If they win, Sean could go home with his family today. If he loses, he may only have a couple more weeks in the United States. We're back on the record. When the judge walks back in, we all sit up straight. All parties that were present when I went off the record to deliberate are once again present. While I was off the record, I departed the courtroom. I had no contact with either side. And to his credit, he does not bury the lead. Sir, I am not going to grant your relief this afternoon. I'm going to order that respondent be removed from the United States to Guyana. Sean lost. I look over at his family in the pews in front of me and off to the right. They don't react. They just stare at the judge. Some silently hug the person next to them. And I realize this moment happens all the time in courtrooms across the country. Paragraph applications, colon. Paragraph exhibits, colon. Paragraph one. The judge's decision is incredibly technical. But the point is, Julio actually won his legal argument, got the judge to think of Sean as a low-level drug offender. But he failed to convince the judge that Sean deserves to stay. This is the part Julio thought he had locked down, with Sean's 11 family members in the audience, those 30 letters from friends and family. As a matter of discretion, comma, I find that the negative factors in this case far outweigh the positive factors in respondent's case. But Julio was wrong. Mr. Marino, sir, do you have anything else to take up at today's hearing? Nothing further, Your Honor. Thanks. Mr. McKee, do you? No, sir. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I, I thank you all for coming down to support the respondent today and for your testimony. Uh, to the respondent, sir, I wish you the very best of luck, and we are adjourned. The family shuffles slowly out of the courtroom. As soon as the door shuts, Sean's stepmother starts wailing. She nearly faints. 
and the family carries her to the waiting area so she can sit down. I run out to the car to get my recorder. When I get back to the group, they're debriefing with Julio in the parking lot. Marie and Joey have tears running down their faces. Everyone's really upset. You can hear Sean's stepmother reacting to Julio. So we're going to file the appeal. They'll be done next week. He's going to remain here. They're not going to deport him anytime soon. He'll be at this jail for at least two to three months while we wait on that. And hopefully we have a better judge to review the whole case. Everybody's conceding that he has been convicted. Yeah, of course. But the whole point of this defense is that he's changed and he's ready yeah, to make a, uh, you know, a full change in his life. So. Judge is heartless. You know, all we're saying that give him another chance. Give him a chance. What is he going to do again? That what is she going to do there? I would don't have even changed. know. He changed. changed. A security guard walks up, tells us to keep moving. We wrap things up and head back to our cars. If you guys want to have any other questions, you want to come up off tomorrow. We can talk about it some more. We're okay. over the phone. Feel free to give me a call. We're going to keep working on this. I mean, it's not the end. It was a bad decision, and we're going to repeal it, and hopefully we'll get a better judge to review Thank it. Thank you so much. All right. Getting kicked out of here doesn't help. What's the point of families obviously upset? I'm explaining to them the, you know, the consequences and the options. And so we can't even be in the parking lot. They're still standing outside the car. So bad for the son. Everybody else has grown up. He had nothing to do with this. And he's the one that's going to suffer the consequences. Do you think you can win on appeal? I feel less confident about an appeal than I did before the hearing. If it had been based on a legal ground, I would have felt better about the appeal. Appealing a discretionary decision like this is really hard because judges are supposed to give each other the benefit of the doubt. So to win, you have to convince another judge that one of his colleagues made a really grave error on a decision that's subjective. There's another truck telling me to leave, I guess. It's going to be a long ride home for us, and an even longer one for Sean's family. We drive out of the parking lot and start heading back to Atlanta. Julio says only one out of every five of his clients in Lumpkin have been able to stay in the U.S., And I have to ask why he keeps doing this. So you're good with those numbers? Yeah, I'm fine with that. Like I said, if it was 300 cases I did and one family that I got out and I was able to keep them together, I'll be fine with that. As long as I'm honest with the detainee from the beginning, they have reasonable expectations on the case and they want me to represent them and go forward, I'll keep doing the cases. It takes me a few weeks to get a hold of Marie after the hearing. She's not picking up her phone. At one point, she sends me a text that says she's having a really hard time. She's just not in the mood to catch up. Eventually, she agrees to let me come out to Georgia, see how they're doing. We meet at her mother's house. Seems like this is where the whole family hangs out. Oh, my nephew. My nephew's. Marie says she's been too tired to feel anything but numb about this experience. But the kids are having a hard time, especially Joey. He's starting to play basketball and football for the first time. You know, and all these kids got their dads out there, and, you know, he's there like, I wish daddy was here, you know. Even his daughter will call and cry, like, I need daddy right now. And I'm like, I can't help you. Daddy's not here. I stay for over an hour, but there isn't much the family can say. They're in limbo. 
Before I go, I ask Joey what he tells his friends now about where his dad is. He tells them his dad's going to be home from his business trip soon. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. Press 1 or star. When I get back to the office, I get a call from Sean in jail. Right now, I'm in Alabama. I don't even know the name of this facility. Etowah County Jail. I'm in a county jail right now. Sean tells me he was transferred out of Lumpkin to a facility in Louisiana. Then he was transferred again to Alabama. This happens to detained immigrants a lot, to make more room for people wherever it's needed. Sean says that first night after the hearing, he called his family, like he has every night for the past eight months. But this time, nobody really said anything. They just cried. His spirits are a little higher now. He made friends with his cellmate, who's also in on a drug charge. At night, they sit around and commiserate. Do you think you should have had to face any consequences, Sean, for what you did? I, I felt like I already did, did that already when I went to prison. Did that feel justified to you at the time? Yes, I feel like that's that's my that's my consequences because right now this is this is double jeopardy. What happened to all the years that I've been in this country and paying taxes and, and, and all this stuff? You know, just to hell with me. Two days later, I get a call from Julio. Sean lost his appeal. I want to know what made the judge decide against them. But Julio doesn't have any answers. In fact, he says he just won a really similar case in a different immigration court. He says this kind of thing just happens all the time. This episode was reported by Caitlin Dickerson and produced by Chris Benderev. It was edited by Sean Cole and Steve Drummond with help from Nicole Beamsterboer, Lulu Miller, Tom Dreisbach, Brent Bachman, and Bob Little. Digital production is by Alexander McCall. Research help from Will Chase. Original music in this podcast is by Colin Wamsgans. The show is executive produced by me, Chris Turpin, and Anya Grundman. Our project manager is Kasia Podbielski. You can hear more NPR on your local public radio station on another show I host called All Things Considered. We'll be back next week where we're going to do something a little different. We're going to go back to Indiana and try to find some of the people we met in our first episode. Hi, I'm going to see if I could run a name by you, see if someone's being held at the jail right now. Hey, Samantha, this is Kelly McEvers. I'm a radio reporter. I met you last year. This time last year, I had a home. I had a car. My house full of furniture, a lot of nice stuff. I had my kids. Rings on every finger, you know, money in the bank. And in less than 12 months, gone. If you haven't done it yet, subscribe to this podcast and you know what to do. Keep leaving those reviews in iTunes. Also, download the NPR One app where you can hear episodes of Pop Culture Happy Hour a day earlier than usual. Seriously, download NPR One. It's awesome. I'm Kelly McEvers. Thank you for listening. Thank you.